Everybody up here, by the way, is united. No matter who wins this damn thing, we're all going to stand together to defeat them. Are you sure about that, Bernie? Are you positive about that? Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling that something ain't right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Here I am. Yes, I'm stuck in the middle with you. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. Also in Red Bluff and Redding, California on KFOI, Round Mountains, KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE. On the central coast of Oregon on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, and Eugene's KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP. In Grand Rapids on WPRR, New Orleans, WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico's KNIZ. In Concord, New Hampshire on WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ. In Seattle on KODX. In Janesville, Wisconsin on WADR and in Minneapolis, St. Paul on AM 950 KTNF. We also stream coast to coast and around the globe every day on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, Deprogrammed Radio, and Detour Talk. Not to mention your favorite podcast download site, wherever that may be, however you found us. We thank you for joining us five days a week right here for a little adventure we call The Bradcast. I am Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me, from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today. Uh, As usual, it has been a very busy weekend as Democrats continue to battle it out. In the wake of the the first-in-the-nation Iowa caucus debacle, while voters in New Hampshire head to the polls for the the first-in-the-nation primary election on Tuesday, and as Trump's incompetent, criminal, and iron-fisted rule grows darker and more criminal by the hour. I want to uh, hit a number of points today uh, regarding Iowa and New Hampshire And beyond, yes, some news I hope to get to today here out of Los Angeles regarding a problem I reported to the L.A. County Registrar Recorder County Clerk over the weekend. But I thought it would be very helpful here first to to very quickly remind you about what the nation is up against exactly this November As it might be a useful reminder to put some of the intra-party squabbling that we are seeing among Democrats into perspective today. And I've seen quite a bit of that squabbling over the weekend. In fact, uh, Desi Doyen, people mad at me. Uh, Can you believe it? (laughs) For, well, you know, talking about what the facts are, what they aren't, what we know, what we don't. Look, sometimes it is difficult to have what you thought was going on be challenged by somebody who may have done a little bit more, say, research into what the actual facts are. And that can be a difficult emotional thing if you're emotionally invested. But seriously, we all need to focus on what the facts, the actual verifiable facts are. And, uh, of course, there are a lot of people emotionally invested, understandably, and I'm glad they are when it comes to uh, uh, this primary uh, debate 
primaries going on right now. I understand that. I'm glad that people are passionate about it. I do hope they may think ahead a bit to what may happen if their chosen candidate does not win and if they spend a whole lot of time disparaging uh, whoever might be the ultimate nominee, if they disparage them now, don't forget that disparagement is going to come in very useful for Republicans and Donald Trump come November. So just keep that in mind. We'll get to some more of that uh, in a bit. But I wanted to remind you of what we are all up against. Uh, Remember that game show giveaway stunt of a State of the Union address that Trump carried out last week? Yes, the queen for a day, I think is what Heather Digby Parton called it. Yes, uh, well, where he gave away a a promotion, a military promotion to a 100-year-old African-American Tuskegee Airman. He gave the Presidential Medal of Freedom to a racist, misogynist Rush Limbaugh. And he gave a scholarship to a private school uh, for a private school or something to a young African-American elementary school kid all in the middle of this State of the Union address. Well, on that last point, the Philadelphia fourth grader who President Trump shouted out to in his State of the Union speech Tuesday to promote school choice reportedly already attends one of the city's most desired chartered schools. According to the Philadelphia Inquirer on Friday, Janaya Davis, who Trump said in his speech is one of thousands of students, quote, trapped in failing government schools, unquote, as he announced that she will receive a scholarship to attend the school of her choice, apparently she has attended Math, Science, and Technology Community Charter School Number 3 since September. The Inquirer notes that the charter school is so in demand that it receives some 6,500 applications for just 100 seats that are available in the coming school year, and that because charters are independently run by private outfits, but they are taxpayer-funded, that means that Davis and the other 900 students at the school already do not pay tuition. Davis's mother, Stephanie, expressed puzzlement when she was asked how uh, she and her daughter landed in the audience last week for Trump's State of the Union speech. Uh, during the interview with the Inquirer, she said, well, I was kind of hesitant to answer when the uh, call came from Washington, D.C. She said, I thought it was a scam. Well, it turns out it was a scam. <laughs> oh my goodness, yes. Just, just not the scam that she imagined it to be. It was the president of the United States finding some random African-American girl, apparently, to award a scholarship to, one who apparently does not need one, you know, in the middle of his last State of the Union address before his re-election contest. So, yes, uh, this was, in fact, uh, a scam. It was a hoax by a sadly non-hoax of a president, I guess, who enjoys playing the American people for fools. The same president who, after assassinating a top Iranian general in violation of our nation's nearly 50-year-old ban on political assassinations, political state-sponsored assassinations, this same president also attempted to hoax the American people by telling us that all was well, that there were no injuries to U.S. troops after Iran responded with a fusillade of ballistic missiles against an airbase in Iraq that housed hundreds of American troops. 
Following that assassination of the Iranian general by Donald Trump, well, all was not well at all. And we continue to learn as much every day, despite the president, who pretends to love the military troops, lying about those military troops and their well-being. A CNN uh, uh, Pentagon correspondent Barbara Starr reports today that over 100 100 U.S. service members have now been diagnosed with traumatic brain injuries in the wake of the January 8 Iranian missile attack on the al-Assad military base in Iraq. That's an increase of at least 36 cases from the end of January when the Pentagon admitted that 64 service members had been diagnosed with injuries. Now we are up to more than 100. The president and uh, the Pentagon had initially said no service members were injured or killed in the Iranian missile attack, which was retaliation for the January 2 U.S. drone strike that killed the top Iranian general. Approximately 200 people who were in the blast zone at the Iraqi base uh, at the time of the attack have now been screened for symptoms of TBI or traumatic brain injury. During a news conference at the Pentagon last month, Joint Chiefs Chair General Mark Milley said the increasing number of reported cases stems in part from the fact that the injuries, for the most part, fall into the category of mild TBI, which takes time for symptoms to manifest. So he says we continue to screen. Some of them, uh, some of these uh, injured uh, troops have been evacuated now to Europe. Some have been evacuated back to the United States, he said. Last month, Trump said he does not consider potential brain injuries to be as serious as physical combat wounds. Commander-in-Chief Bonespurs said during the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland last month, uh, when he was asked to explain the discrepancy between his previous comments that no U.S. service members were harmed uh, and the reports of U.S. troops being treated for injuries, uh, he said, no, I heard they had headaches. And a couple of other things. But I would say, and I can report, it's not very serious. So traumatic brain injury is apparently not very serious. It amounts to nothing more than headaches, headaches for more than 100 uh, U.S. service members. An influential veterans group, one that I know uh, Donald Trump uh, has uh, spoke with uh, in uh, in 2016 and sought their support, that would be the Veterans of Foreign Wars, uh, they demanded that Donald Trump apologize for his comments, dismissing these injuries as just headaches. The uh, William Doc Schmitz, he's the Veterans of Foreign Wars National Commander, said in a statement on Friday that the VFW expects an apology from the president to our servicemen and women for his misguided remarks. Yeah, that's not going to happen. He never apologizes for anything because he never admits error. He is perfect in his own mind. And uh, he said, we ask that he and the White House join with us in our efforts to educate Americans of the dangers TBI has on these heroes as they protect our great nation in these trying times. So, uh, yeah, Desi Doyen, I don't know if you're keeping score, but if our listeners are keeping score at home, uh, just a few days after Trump was impeached by the U.S. House of Representatives, he attempted to change the conversation by assassinating uh, General Qasem Soleimani and several Iraqi officials who were there with him, also killed. They were reportedly on a peace, uh, peace mission. 
And remember, by the way, we're supposed to be allies with Iraq. So he killed the Iranian general along with several Iraqi officials, after which he and other administration officials lied about the reasons why it was done. And then 56 Iranians were trampled to death during funeral processions for that general, with another 200 that were injured. Then, a few days later, following the ballistic missile response, you may have forgotten, by Iran in, in response to the U.S.'s unlawful killing of Soleimani, Iran forces accidentally shot down a Ukrainian passenger jet after takeoff from the airport in Tehran, thinking that it was an incoming response from the U.S., that downed civilian passenger jet ended up killing 176 people on board, including many Ukrainians and Canadians. So 56 Iranians killed uh, in, in the funeral processions, 176 people killed on that passenger jet. And then Donald Trump goes out and lies about no U.S. troops being injured. Everything all is well during Iran's response attack on the Iraqi airbase housing Americans, when, in fact, at least 100 U.S. troops suffered traumatic brain injury. So that's nearly 250 people killed and 100 U.S. troops injured thanks to Donald Trump's attempt to distract from his historic impeachment for abuse of power and obstruction of Congress. And we don't even talk about it all, all that much. This, this man is a dangerous menace in ways that, you know, that I can't even take the time to notice on most days because he's so busy doing all of the all other manner of things to break the republic and to break the planet. And just in case you need one more reminder of the necessity of coming together, all of us, all of us, as you heard Bernie Sanders say at the top of this show just now, all of us to come together to remove this man from office this November in what I have described as our last firewall against full-on authoritarianism, Donald Trump released his new budget proposal for the coming fiscal year today. In case you're wondering uh, what you will get if we fail to remove Donald Trump at the ballot box this November. President Trump released a $4.8 trillion budget proposal on Monday, including a list of deep cuts to student loan assistance, to affordable housing efforts, to food stamps, to Medicaid, reflecting Trump's election year effort to continue shrinking the federal safety net, according to The New York Times. The proposal includes additional spending for the military, for national defense, and for border enforcement, while cutting money to, you know, student loans, housing, food stamps, health care. Oh, and there'll also be more money for Trump's Space Force initiative, and an extension of the tax cuts that were set to expire in 2025. It is the biggest reduction in an annual 2% decrease in spending on discretionary... Uh, I'm sorry, the, its biggest reduction is an annual 2% decrease in spending on discretionary domestic programs like education and environmental protection. Those can go. We can get rid of that. But we need more money for border enforcement and for his stupid goddamn Space Force. The White House budget uh, has little chance of being enacted in full by Congress. 
But it is a stark contrast with the leading Democratic rivals for the White House, who have proposed large tax increases on the rich and expansions of government efforts to provide health care. Well, that would be terrible. Education for our failing public schools. Who needs more money for that? Affordable housing. Uh, what? Allow America's forgotten men and women a place to live that they can afford to live in? Well, we don't want that, do we? And aid for the poor. Because, you know, didn't Jesus say something about helping the poor? I don't know. Don't ask me. I'm Jewish. I'm looking at you, Desi Doyen. <laughs> yes, yes. I think I, it's pretty clear. Jesus did say we really? are called to help the poor, period. End of so, story. I wonder why Donald Trump wants to, to cut that. And Democrats want to increase it. And yet we have all of these people who call themselves religious who are for some reason backing Donald Trump. Go figure. All of this at a time when many Democratic candidates are proposing sweeping efforts to forgive student loan debt and make some or all uh, of uh, public colleges tuition free. Trump's budget is uh, once again recommending eliminating subsidized federal student loans and ending the public service loan program. That's an incentive for teachers and police officers and government workers and other public servants that would cancel their remaining federal student loans after a decade of payments. But Donald Trump is trying to do away with that. Trump's budget makes major changes to health care programs, including several that would lower federal spending in Medicaid. And the Affordable Care Act subsidies. In total, it comes to a trillion dollars of cuts that would mean some that would mean substantial program changes to the Affordable Care Act and to Medicaid. So that's a trillion dollars in cuts to health care for Americans. Democratic candidates, by way of contrast, all of them have offered uh, detailed plans, which typically cost trillions of dollars raised via new taxes on corporations and on the very rich in order to expand health care coverage and reduce costs for American patients. You know, uh, that thing about the, in the Constitution about the general welfare, isn't that in there, I think? We haven't removed that part yet. And that, by way, uh, is, is, is true for every Democratic candidate. Every Democratic candidate is calling for expanding health care for the American people, from Sanders to Warren to Buttigieg to Biden to Klobuchar and beyond, all of, all of whose uh, supporters have been be busy beating the crap out of each other, it seems, for some short-sighted reason over the past several days, since uh, Friday night's debate at St. Anselm College in Manchester, New Hampshire, ahead of Tuesday's New Hampshire primary. Now, that debate was not particularly eventful, as at least as I saw it, with New Hampshire frontrunner Bernie Sanders fending off several attacks from Pete Buttigieg and others, including Joe Biden, as Buttigieg has been surging in recent polling. And Buttigieg faced attacks himself at the debate from Biden, who is uh, seen as losing some of his support to the similarly centrist, if much younger, Mayor Pete. Centrist Amy Klobuchar also attempted to pile on Buttigieg as well, as she appears to be having a bit of a moment since Friday, picking up some support going into the New Hampshire primary, according to weekend polling. And as Elizabeth Warren attempts to regain her earlier momentum, lost of late somewhat, it seems, to Sanders, 
and yes to and and uh, yes uh, Andrew Yang was at the debate and Tom Steyer was also there uh, at the debate on Friday as sponsored by ABC. But I must admit, uh, especially since folks have been uh, sort of eating themselves alive over the past few days over Iowa, that I was actually most interested in hearing almost every single candidate on that stage on Friday and subsequently over the weekend during events in New Hampshire speak to unity, a message that I don't know if their supporters are hearing or are ready to hear uh, just yet. At least if some of the responses to the mess in Iowa in recent days is any indication. But in any case, in case any supporters of any any of the Democrats still running uh, missed it, here is some of those messages from pretty much all of the candidates over the weekend at the debate in media appearances and at a rally held in New Hampshire on Sunday. Everybody up here, by the way, is united. No matter who wins this damn thing, we're all going to stand together to defeat them. We have to restore the soul of this country, bring back the middle class, and make sure we bring people together. We as a party have to be completely united in doing whatever it takes at the end of the day to make sure that this president does not get a second term. I agree with my colleagues. We must unite. First thing we need to do, though, is to win. And to do that, we're going to have to bring our party together. We can't go into the 2020 election like we did in 2016 with different parts of our party warring with each other. We know, we know that what unites us is bigger than what divides us. We know that as a party. We know that. And we have to pull together the gloriously diverse Democratic Party. We don't win unless everybody shows up in November 3rd, 2020, and we outnumber them at the polls. That's how we win. We're all better than Mr. Trump by a million times. A million times. Now, I know that there are differences of opinion in the room. I detect that. Despite the differences of opinion and the candidates that we are supporting, I know that I speak for every candidate is that no matter who wins the Democratic nomination, we are going to come together to defeat the most dangerous president in the history of this country. So, uh, yeah, all the candidates, at least, seem to be talking about unity anyway. And I was I was happy to hear that uh, starting Friday at the debate and then throughout the weekend. Now, whether they actually mean it or not, well, I'll leave that up to you. More importantly, whether their supporters are hearing it, uh, as as noted, that's a different matter altogether, especially what I have seen, as I said, over the past few days since the Iowa caucuses became such a mess. Let's take a quick break here and we'll be back with the uh, with the latest there in the Iowa caucus mess. Get your boots on as we will wade back into uh, through some of the uh, some of the latest muck. And uh, as noted, if I have time for uh, for it, some actually uh, helpful news out of Los Angeles over the weekend concerning our upcoming Super Tuesday election on March 3rd, when California will go to vote with its 495 delegates at stake, along with uh, more than a dozen other states. 
All of that and more straight ahead. I'm Brad Friedman, and you are listening to the Bradcast. Nice going. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter, and we do it all independently, without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Too soon? Maybe so. Welcome back. <laughs> I don't think uh, so. <laughs> I will keep sending that message anyway, uh, period. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Senator Bernie Sanders' campaign plans to ask for a partial re-canvas, a partial re-canvas of the results of last week's Iowa caucuses, according to Alexandra Jaffe at AP Today. A campaign aide confirmed the plans on Sunday night ahead of a Monday deadline for candidates to ask the Iowa Democratic Party to re-canvas the results. Now, a re-canvas is not a recount. It is a check of the vote count against the paper records that were created at each polling place and against the numbers as reported by the Iowa Democratic Party in order to assure, ensure that the counts were reported accurately. It does not necessarily mean that the results were accurate. It just means that they were reported accurately. So it's a review of the precinct-based tallies themselves, where they count at each caucus site, and then they do a whole lot of complicated math and such to figure out the state delegate equivalents and so forth. So this is not an actual recount of the actual hand-marked preference ballots that were cast at each caucus site. And even using the word recount isn't exactly right because I don't know that they actually counted those uh, ballots in the first place, but they were sort of meant as a backup. Instead, what they did was each of the supporters for each candidate stood in a part, uh, you know, a certain part of the gymnasium, and then they counted them up that way. But they, they did make these actual handmark preference ballots for the first time that voters filled out at each caucus site to use if a so-called recount of those votes was ever actually needed. And this was one of the improvements. I guess you could call it, that the state Democratic Party uh, tried to make this year in Iowa. The Associated Press remains unable to declare a winner uh, to the Iowa caucus because it believes the results may not be fully accurate as currently reported and could still be subject to potential revision. The state party, however, released updated results on Sunday showing Pete Buttigieg ahead by two-tenths of one percent in the state delegate equivalent count, or just two state delegate equivalents out of some 2,152 counted, according to AP. So that is the traditional way that the Iowa caucus has been reported in the past, by state delegate equivalents. 
Um, but due to justifiable complaints from the Sanders campaign after the 2016 caucuses, this year, for the first time, the Iowa Democratic Party was attempting, is attempting, to report actual vote totals, not just the crazy, wicked, uh, confusing math that gets them to figure out how, you know, how many state delegate equivalents there are, but they're actually reporting out the vote totals um, from uh, from both rounds of voting, from the first round and the final round at each caucus site. That is part of the reason that they ran into so many problems uh, reporting the numbers last week, because in each case they had to report the uh, the first round of voting totals, the final round of voting totals, and then the state delegate equivalents for each of the candidates. In each case, you had out of each caucus some 36 different figures, 36 different numbers that needed to be reported back to the uh, Iowa caucus, Democratic Party caucus headquarters. Now, for our part, we made clear on Friday's show that, yes, Bernie Sanders is most clearly the winner, given that he received about 6,000 more actual total votes in the first round of voting and about 2,500 more votes uh, than Buttigieg in the uh, second and final round of voting after the voters who were supporting non-viable candidates in the first round because their, their candidate did not reach the 15% required threshold after those supporters had to switch to support a different candidate in the final round of voting. So, well, if you will, Bernie Sanders won the popular vote and Pete Buttigieg oh. barely, apparently, won the, <laughs> the electoral, electoral vote. Yeah, sort of. <laughs> That's sort of what happened here. But that is also because of uh, the Iowa Democratic Party caucuses are really complicated rules, super complicated rules. Yes, but at least we know now uh, both Buttigieg and Sanders claimed victory in the caucuses. And I, I think they both actually have a right to here. Buttigieg, uh, because he holds a razor thin lead in the delegate count. Sanders, because he has received the most total support overall. Uh, but the chaos and inconsistencies in the reporting of the results, as AP describes it, have raised widespread doubts and prompted sharp criticism of the process by, by, process by candidates and party leaders as the field has largely shifted its focus in the meantime to the next primary state of New Hampshire. But with the slim margins separating Buttigieg and Sanders, the slightest mathematical or reporting mistake could have a significant impact on the race, at least to those people who, uh, you know, think that this is about uh, delegates and not about who got the most actual support, who got the most actual voters. Now, it is about delegates because that's the ultimate prize in a primary. Um, but the fact is we're talking about one or two delegates out of thousands and thousands that will uh, be won or lost over the next few months as the primary season continues. And at best, the numbers that we were talking about and that we're looking at, you know, potentially changing here, if they change with a partial recanvas of the type that Sanders is requesting, is really maybe one or two delegates at best. Again, out of thousands, you need about 2,000 to win the nomination at the Democratic uh, National Convention this summer. Uh, still, bragging rights are important, and uh, getting it right, uh, getting it accurate is also important. A Sanders aide said the campaign will be asking the state party to review the results from 20 to 30 precincts. That out of more than 1,700 precincts 
that caused uh, havoc a week ago in the uh, in the Hawkeye state. Technical issues roiled the caucus. Uh, an app used by party volunteers to report results uh, and jammed up phone lines set up for uh, the same purpose caused all kinds of problems. Trump supporters support, uh, uh, reportedly helped to jam those phone lines, by the way, as we discussed in detail with former Republican operative Alan Raymond on our previous broadcast. Raymond went to jail himself for a similar phone jamming scheme that was carried out by the RNC in 2002, uh, which uh, he led on their behalf in a New Hampshire U.S. Uh, US Senate race back in 2002. It was a fascinating conversation. If you missed my uh, uh, interview with uh, Alan Raymond, uh, you can download it from bradblog.com. Uh, he thinks there was more, well, suggests that it's possible that there was more to the Iowa phone jamming than just some uh, random Trump trolls uh, who got the hotline number for the Democratic Party on a far right wing website. Um, in any event, all of that resulted in the Iowa Democratic Party failing to release any results to the public until nearly a day after the event. And even then it was only partial numbers and they have been updating them ever since. Uh, in the in the process, in the bargain, uh, party volunteers found inconsistencies in the complicated math worksheets that were used by caucus volunteers to calculate the outcome of each individual caucus. To confirm the validity of the data that they received, the Iowa Democratic Party uh, has been spending much of the week collecting those paper records of the results and checking them against the numbers that were reported by volunteers. But the updated results on Sunday still apparently left issues with the complicated math in place, the complicated math that was used to calculate results in each individual caucus site. Party leaders say that fixing that math would be a violation of the law. In other words, even if math errors were made on these tally sheets at in each individual uh, caucus site, the state party says they cannot change that math to make it accurate even if they wanted to, because of state law requirements, apparently, or at least that's what the state Democratic Party's attorneys are arguing. Precinct leaders are required to fill out a caucus math worksheet at every caucus site to record the number of attendees and the results on both the first and second round of voting. Those worksheets are then signed by the precinct leader, by the precinct secretary and by representatives of each campaign that is present at each caucus site in order to certify the accuracy of those caucus math worksheets. They are considered the official paper record of what went on in each individual caucus room, at least unless someone calls for an actual recount of those presidential uh, uh, preference ballots. So I know there are a lot of folks out there that are claiming this and are certain about it. They are certain that this was stolen, that Iowa was stolen from Bernie by the DNC or by the Iowa Democratic Party or by Pete Buttigieg somehow. But all the numbers that are currently being used to determine who won and by how much, etc., were already signed off on by each campaign's precinct caucus captain on caucus night. Now, so I don't believe there is any credible evidence anywhere 
that numbers have somehow been uh, changed specifically in order to hurt Bernie or to help uh, Pete Buttigieg, etc. And yet, I-, I sure am seeing a lot of folks on Twitter telling me otherwise. And yes, even suggesting that I am I must somehow be in the bag for Pete or something. I don't know. I think it's kind of nuts. I work from independently verifiable evidence, period. And if I saw evidence of chicanery, I would be delighted to be the first to point it out to you and to call out whoever the bad guys were. I would like to think that uh, people who listen to this program or who read the Brad blog would know that by now. But, well... You would be surprised, I guess, how on edge everyone is right now uh, that uh, even I am somehow the bad guy here to some folks on the Twitters. Anyway, the Iowa Democratic Party uh, used those paper records from each caucus site to ensure that they matched the numbers that the party has reported publicly. But errors in those worksheets themselves in this complicated math abound, according to AP. In some cases, there were issues in adding up votes for candidates or the final count of individuals uh, participating after two rounds of voting was larger than in the initial count. It shouldn't be larger. It might be smaller because some people might leave after the first round, but it should not be larger. Uh, In others, precinct leaders made errors when using the party's complicated formula that translates raw votes into those state delegate equivalents, which are ultimately used to calculate how many national delegates that each candidate receives. And again, the documents in question here were signed off on by each candidate's precinct captain on caucus night. And uh, internal uh, party email sent over the weekend by the chair of the Democratic Iowa Democratic Party, uh, uh, Troy Price, said that according to the advice of the party's attorney, the worksheets are considered legal documents and tampering with them would amount to a crime. Uh, The lawyer said in the internal party email, quote, it is the legal voting record of the caucus like a ballot. The seriousness of the record is made clear by the language at the bottom stating that any misrepresentation of the information is a crime. Therefore, any changes or tampering with the sheet could result in a claim of election interference or misconduct. But apparently uh, not changing or tampering them has also resulted in claims of election interference or misconduct, at least from many supporters of Bernie Sanders. But here's the thing. If this was some attempt to screw over Bernie, it would have had to involve so many people and so many planned failures, including a failure of the smartphone app, including the jammed phone lines, including uh, the incorrect math on a small percentage of the complicated precinct caucus, caucus math sheets that were then signed off on by all of the campaign precinct captains at each site. Including Bernie's precinct yeah. captains at the, each precinct site. Exactly. I mean, So for a party that makes... Apparently, so many screw ups along every step of this process, they would have to be deviously competent to somehow use all of those screw ups on purpose to pull off such a scheme by planning all of those errors across the entirety of the caucus process. 
uh, with nobody in this huge conspiracy willing to step forward and blow the whistle on the scheme, all so that Bernie Sanders could still win the popular vote by several thousand votes and Pete Buttigieg would somehow uh, win the state delegate equivalents by 0.2 of a percent. Okay, I guess that could happen. I, I take concerns about election fraud very seriously, as I hope anybody who has followed my work for even, you know, any period of time would realize and if you're going to claim fraud, if you're going to claim someone is rigging an election, is stealing an election, I think that deserves some pretty good goddamn evidence to support such a serious claim. And I would call out that evidence. I would call that out. Whoever, if anybody was trying to do that, I would call that out, of course, if I saw it. But I see no such evident, evidence of any, you know, tr tremendous scheme to try to rig this process. I see a lot of evidence of incompetence and screw-ups. But as I noted last week, I'm happy to see that because guess what? I can see that thanks to the transparency of the Iowa process. And that is thanks in no small part to Bernie Sanders, whose campaign complained in 2016 that the delegate math when he barely lost to Hillary Clinton on that score in the uh, state delegate equivalents back in 2016, that that obscured the fact that then, as now, Bernie Sanders actually received more votes than any other candidate in the caucuses. How many elections do we have similar errors and screw-ups uh, that occur in the tabulation, but that we do not even know about because the public is not allowed to see the math or the source material until it's far too late, if even then. I'm still waiting for someone to hand count the ballots in the 2016 presidential election in Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania. Because no, I have no confidence in those numbers as they were reported. I have a feeling I'm going to be waiting for a while still on those. But in the meantime... I see no evidence of purposeful manipulation of results. And you have every right to be uh, angry about the way the Iowa caucuses worked out. Uh, all of the errors and the problems, that's fine. But the voters did fine. The caucuses themselves reportedly went very smoothly. But in the Democratic Party's attempt to, yes, improve the caucus process by being much more transparent than they had ever been uh, in the past regarding how people voted and how the results were derived so we could see them all, so we could see that, yes, in fact, Bernie did get the most voters. Well, they screwed that up. They screwed it up big time. But luckily, they did, it, they did so transparently in a way that we can all see that they screwed up and appropriately correct errors as needed. That is thanks to public oversight, where these things are tallied in secret inside computers. When those numbers are wrong, you will never know it. But now we know it because we can all see the numbers. By the way, according to... Democratic National Committee Chair Tom Perez on Sunday, he too is, quote, mad as hell about how the caucuses unfolded. At least he says as much. He suggested the issues in Iowa could spell the end of caucuses altogether, which are technically party run events. In this case, the state party is uh, running the event, not the national party. And not professional election officials either. And uh, rather than, yeah, these are not government run elections. Uh, the, the caucuses aren't. Uh, like the one that we will see in Tuesday in New Hampshire. Now, some prefer those. I don't necessarily have a preference. 
Uh, my preference is to make sure that the public can oversee the elections process from top to bottom, from beginning to end. And we have a quick story about that out here in Los Angeles. Up right after a quick break, I'm Brad Friedman. This is your Bradcast. Don't touch that dial. Hey, this is Brad. If you haven't noticed by now, it's no easy feat finding facts, real facts, not alternative facts, over your public airwaves. We try to bring you real facts, truth, and clarity without fear or favor each and every day on the Bradcast. But we need your help to do it. If you enjoy the show and or get something from it, please give back a bit, if you can, by visiting us at bradblog.com donate. Your support helps Desi and me continue to bring you real, independent, progressive news five days a week over your public airwaves. We simply can't do it without your help, and that help is needed more now than ever. Please stop by bradblog.com donate today to make a one-time donation or, even better, automated monthly support. It'll take you about 60 seconds, and you can rest easy knowing that we'll be here every day making sense of it all, or at least trying to. That's bradblog.com slash donate, and thanks. California, here I come, right back where I started from. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Yeah, we'll be coming back to California here uh, soon enough as voting begins in... Let's see, early voting begins in just a couple weeks out here in uh, California for the March 3rd Super Tuesday primary, which also includes Texas, North Carolina, and about a dozen other states. Uh, we have been covering on uh, this show. Oh, uh, welcome back. Uh, it's the Bradcast, Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. All right. We have been covering <laughs> the new secretly developed, untested, unnecessary, unverifiable touchscreen computer voting systems that are set for first-time use uh, out here in the nation's largest voting jurisdiction of Los Angeles County, California, for some time on this program. Uh, not only because it's a $300 million boondoggle of a system in the making, for a system that, by the way, will be 100% unverifiable after the close of polls in the March 3 Super Tuesday primary, unlike the Iowa caucuses where we can actually go back and figure out how people did or didn't vote. So not because of that as the boondoggle, and not only because I happen to vote in Los Angeles County, and not only because similar unverifiable touchscreen computer ballot marking devices or BMDs are proliferating in states across the country, including battleground states like Georgia, Pennsylvania, North Carolina, Texas, and elsewhere, but also because Los Angeles County, with its 5.5 million voters, has an outsized effect on how California as a whole will vote in the primaries how the delegates will be apportioned for the uh, National uh, Democratic Party's convention and ultimate selection of a nominee. So we have an outsized uh, effect Los Angeles County does on California, which in turn has an outsized effect uh, on the final nominee and frankly on the general election in November. 
Moreover, California itself has an outsized impact on the Democratic primary contest nationwide because we moved up our presidential primary, which used to be held much later in the cycle, usually in, in, uh, in the summer. We've now moved, moved it up to March 3, with some 495 delegates to be selected and doled out in California alone to be sent to the DNC in a contest that essentially requires about 2,000 delegates for a candidate to be named the nominee. So what happens in about three weeks in California could have an outsized effect on the entire primary uh, contest for the rest of the country. To that end, setting aside the 100% unverifiable touchscreen computer voting systems that I've been reporting on, quite critically and warning about for months and years at this point, I received a note over the weekend from a Bernie Sanders campaign volunteer out here in Los Angeles, which included a photo of a vote-by-mail ballot drop-off box at UCLA. Uh, it's It's a small, hard, plastic box that sits on a table with big white block letters on it that read ballots, and uh, what appears to be a computer-printed piece of paper that is sort of duct-taped on the front that says VBM, vote-by-mail, VBM drop-off box. It's sitting on a table in what looks like a lobby with nobody seen near it in, uh, in the photographs. Yeah, that's not good. The person who, uh, who took the photo wrote, said, uh, this is the official drop-off location at UCLA for vote-by-mail ballots. No one watching it. Light as a feather, and who knows how often they come to collect. It is not bolted down. It's right by the door and a good 20 feet from staff who have no idea about how often ballots are picked up. The box weighs about five pounds. It could easily be taken. They could just walk away with the entire box. There are some pretty intense Trump contingents on campus, this person writes, that harass the student canvassers for Bernie, I think. So I sent this uh, photo and the comments uh, from this uh, Bernie Sanders volunteer to the Los Angeles County Registrar Recorder County Clerk, Dean Logan, who, as regular listeners of this program may remember, only very rarely, if ever anymore, responds to my emails. Uh, I have a hard time getting a question answered from him. Uh, He certainly is not appearing on the show, despite so many times I've invited him and despite the fact that he used to come on. In any event, I CC'd uh, this photo and these comments to him. And uh, whenever, while he doesn't respond to my emails very often, when he gets one that is CC'd to other people, sometimes he will cursorily respond to me. Uh, I actually sent these comments and the photo to both him and someone at the Secretary of State's office. I did so via email to his official account uh, and the uh, Secretary of State's official uh, address so that there is a a uh, FOIAable record of this uh, question being sent about these concerns. I also sent uh, the same question and the photos via uh, direct message over Twitter in hopes that he and or the Secretary of State's office would see one or or both notices. So I eventually received a response the next day via email from Logan on Sunday afternoon, though only after I shared the note with another election integrity person out there who Dean still does speak to a bit more than me. And uh, for her part, she also included a California State Assembly member in all of this. So Logan wrote back to all of us at that point, 
Agreements for internal vote-by-mail drop-off locations include requirements for on-site supervision, line-of-sight, and secured storage during public during non-public hours. There is a standard refresh collection schedule that is part of the agreement and protocol as well. We will contact the parties to the agreement at UCLA and ensure the requirements and protocols are followed. Well, that's good. I, so, so on Sunday, they said we will check on this right away at UCLA, figure out what's going on. According to this photo, uh, he didn't admit that it looks bad, but I think he was admitting that it <laughs> kind of looks bad. really bad. Uh, I wrote back. I said, by the way, similar drop off boxes for vote by mail ballots in Oregon and Washington state are bolted like USPS mailboxes. They have uh, all vote by mail elections pretty much in both Oregon and Washington state. Uh, I said, if this is the plan for collecting VBM uh, vote-by-mail ballots at satellite sites, this is another recipe for disaster in the making. Which I thought was uh, very kind of me to give him this information. I didn't go public with it until we got a comment from him about what was going on. His uh, somewhat snarky response in return was, we are well aware of what Washington and Oregon do. Thanks. There is a distinction in California regulations between internal supervised boxes and external 24-hour boxes. We have those two, he says. As indicated, we will follow up and ensure compliance and or make modifications and we'll get information beyond the photograph. My somewhat snarky response in response to his snarky response... (laughs) Uh, where he said, we're well aware of what Washington and Oregon do. Thanks. I said, I thought some of the others CC'd on this email might not be, so I pointed it out. Thanks. Uh, he, uh, as to the uh, internal, uh, the differences between the supervised boxes and the external 24-hour boxes, etc., I said, thank you. This is why I contacted you first before going public with it, though I'm sure it will get out and it will not be good. Thus, the heads up, you're welcome. Uh, He did not reply to that note, (laughs) though he did respond to another follow-up from the other election integrity activist who who jumped in with uh, much, much stronger words than my very polite words. She jumped in with her concerns. Uh, So I got this email, uh, this update this morning from Dean Logan, the county clerk registrar recorder. In Los Angeles County, the nation's largest voting jurisdiction, he said, thank you for sharing your concerns with us regarding the VBM drop-off location at the UCLA John Wooden Center. We have successfully used this location in the past without any issues. Of course, how would they know? How would they know if there were issues? How would they know if somebody went in and took ballots out? Anyway, he says, our tabletop ballot box has been deployed in past elections without any security incidents. Staff is instructed to place the box in a secure and accessible place during business hours and secure the box overnight. The UCLA John Wooden Center, he says, agreed to participate in the program and signed an agreement confirming their knowledge of their responsibilities. Given the size of the facility and the security concerns raised, we have switched their staffed box with one of our 24-hour boxes that is being deployed inside. The box was replaced at 6.45 a.m. on February 10, 2020. 
That would be this morning. Monday morning, they replaced the entire box. UCLA John Wooden Center staff will continue to monitor the box, and the box will be available during the normal business hours. We have reached out to the location to go over their responsibilities and answer any questions. You will find pictures of the new box and placement below. Signed, Dean C. Logan, Registrar, Recorder, County Clerk, etc. So, and they include, it looks like a big box made of, uh, what's that, heavy fabricated uh, wood. Laminate. Laminate, yeah. Uh, it's a big box. It looks like it would be difficult to walk away with. I don't know whether it's bolted or not. I responded to the email, said, thanks for the update. How is that made to be more secure? Is it bolted to the ground or some such? Or is it just heavier and larger, so less likely to be walked away with, etc.? Also, I understand there are a number of other boxes along the line of the original one at UCLA, at other schools and libraries. How many of those are there? Is there a list of where they are? And is there a similar plan to replace them as well? Well, I have yet to hear back from uh, Dean on that, uh, at least as of airtime. But I wanted to share all of this with you because it is a good example of the importance of citizen public oversight of our public elections that I always talk about. You know, I suppose someone could have gone out and just yelled, uh, Dean Logan is stealing the election by putting out these shoddy boxes or, you know, so ballots will be stolen or something like that. Or we could all try to work together here to hold the feet of election officials and their processes for carrying out our elections to the fire. To oversee the entire process, to make sure that it has as much integrity as possible so that we don't end up with another Iowa on our hands. I don't think Dean Logan uh, was, you know, used this shoddy box because he hopes somebody steals the election or that he's trying to steal it for any particular candidate. But uh, it's not always the election professionals who, uh, are, you know, succeed at this. We shouldn't leave these in the hands of the so-called election professionals. This is about our public elections. The public needs to be able to oversee it. And in this case, uh, someone working on the Bernie Sanders campaign did a good job of overseeing it, calling this to uh, the media's attention, to my attention in this case. I called it to the county's attention, and they have fixed the problem. This is what elections are supposed to be about. Oversee the entire process to make sure that it has as much integrity as possible so, you know, we don't want another Iowa caucus or any other list of corrupt failed elections that I could point you to from the 2016 election debacle to the 2012 Iowa Republican caucus debacle. You don't hear much about that from the Republicans complaining about Democrats and their debacle in Iowa. Anyway, you get the idea. Hopefully this change this change makes our uh, March 3rd Super Tuesday primary elections a bit more secure in L.A. Hopefully it will help public officials think twice about hardening security for their election. Hopefully my sharing this information with you might help you keep an eye on such things in your state or your county. And hopefully it's an example of how important public oversight is to our public elections. Got it? All right. We got to get out of here. My thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program, please download it and share it anytime for free uh, from bradblog.com. That is made possible by those of you who support our work 
by stopping by bradblog.com slash donate. We are 100% independent thanks to listener support only to keep going here on the Bradcast. You can drop me email. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. On the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am the Bradblog. That's it. Until we meet tomorrow, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Good luck, world.